my friends who listen to Future Primitive, I'm on the phone with Andrew Fellows on Skype, actually. He is a Jungian analyst, deep ecologist, and writer with private practice in Zurich and Bern. He holds a doctorate in applied physics and had many years of international professional engagement with renewable, especially wind energy, sustainable development and energy policy. His special interests include the relationship between mind and matter, the anima mundi, the midlife transition, the new sciences, and the use of analytical psychology to understand and address global collective problems, in particular climate change. I am holding in my hand his book that came out in March. It's called Gaia, Psyche and Deep Ecology, Navigating Climate Change in the Anthropocene. So welcome, welcome, Andrew. Thank you. And um, why don't you start by telling us what the Anthropocene is? The Anthropocene is a name that has been given to the geological era in which human activity uh, has become a significant force affecting the state of the planet. Um, in fact, it has been rejected by the, oh, I can't remember, but the official geological union in favour of another name. But before that, the term caught on so widely that it is really used as a, as a shorthand term for the damage, really the damage that we're inflicting on Gaia, on the planet, uh, in so many different ways. Anthropos, of course, is us, and uh, yeah, that's the origin of it. Good, good. And um, although a lot of our listeners know the word Gaia and, uh, and understand some of its meaning, I would love to hear from you what Gaia represents. This really began with a, a flash of insight that James Lovelock had in 1965. He'd been commissioned by the Jet Propulsion Laboratory to come up with ways in which you might identify life on other planets. And when he started thinking about this, thinking of life as a global scale phenomenon, he suddenly realized just how improbable the conditions on Earth were, in particular, how, how out of equilibrium the atmosphere on Earth is. It's so rich in oxygen, if it was a little bit richer, um, forest fires would never go out. If it, if it was a little bit lower oxygen, life as we know it would suffocate. So what he realized was that the whole planet is far 
from chemical equilibrium. And that suggests that life itself was regulating the conditions on the whole planet. And so that's what led him to his, his hypothesis. And um, the most recent definition I've seen of it written by him was in 2009 and he said it's a view of the earth that sees it as a self-regulating system made up from the totality of organisms the surface rocks the ocean and the atmosphere tightly coupled as an evolving system the theory sees this system as having a goal the regulation of surface conditions so as always to be as favorable as possible for contemporary life. It's based on observations and theoretical models. It is fruitful and has made eight successful predictions. So it's really a radical view of the world, particularly this notion of having a goal, which we call teleology, which very much parallels Jung's view of the psyche as well, having a goal. And both Gaia and the psyche are characterized by this continuous tension between stability and change. So you say the mental domain is not confined to the physical brain. And uh, this has been an understanding that has been developing since... Carl Jung spoke about that, but I I feel mainly since the 60s and 70s when um, many of us were able to actually experience that from the use of psychedelic substances. Would you speak about that? Well... For a start, we're rather limiting ourselves to a Western perspective here, but um, that's the one I know about. And Absolutely. the idea actually goes back as far as um, uh, William James and uh, uh, Frederick Myers at the turn of the 19th, from at the end of the 19th century into the 20th century, where they promote, they propose the idea that the brain simply acts as a filter, if you like, to produce individual consciousness. Now, these ideas weren't explicitly adopted by Carl Jung, although his idea of the collective unconscious is really important. But what really got me interested hmm. in this, um, I belong to an organisation called the Society for Mind and Matter Research, and through that I ran into a project at Esalen called mm -hmm. the Sursem Project, which ran for 15 years and employed 45 cutting-edge experts in psychiatry, religion, neuroscience, physics, philosophy, and so on. And they produced two books, which I think are outstanding. And they convinced me, and I speak as, a, as an applied physicist, I'm fairly sceptical when it comes to scientific research. But what I liked about what they found was it's Occam's razor. It's the simplest explanation of so many paranormal phenomena that are proven beyond all doubt to exist. It's a simpler explanation. 
And this year, um, in June, I went to a conference in um, Interlaken. This is an annual conference that alternates between the United States and elsewhere called the Science of Consciousness. And this notion of, you can call it panpsychism, panspiritism, panentheism, whatever, is really is really gathering momentum now. It's really being taken seriously by so many people. So this would um, would favor, like you say, we uh, in our relationship to the planet. We are sort of in a midlife crisis because it would it would suggest that we need to make an enormous change to would it be our ego to be able to be to be inclusive to go from being so isolated in ourselves to become inclusive yes i think we have to let go of the abrahamic myth of, of dominance over nature i think we have to undergo a complete psychological transformation if I can sort of retrace my personal history, I mean, because yes, I think it's relevant please. here. I've, been, yeah. I've, been, I've, been, I've spent all my life coming at the same problem in different ways, from helping friends of the earth to drive a life-size replica of a nuclear waste flask around London, to going on demonstrations, to being very active against nuclear power, to then thinking, well, stop complaining about the problem, be part of the solution, mm-hmm. um, spending well over a decade working with renewable energy. And all that time there was this campaigner struggling to get out of the scientist's body, if you like. Yes. And so I, I got involved in lobbying government and so on in the UK and in other countries. And I began to despair because... We delude ourselves that we're creatures of reason, but actually the arguments that I was coming up against were completely unreasonable. And I thought that I came slowly to the realisation that the obstacles were psychological. If you ask me how to solve climate change, it's easy. It's easy to answer. We have the science to understand it and the technology to fix it. If you ask me how to solve the problems in the Middle East, I have no idea. That's that's beyond mine or I think anybody else's knowledge. But here, it's a very clear issue with very clear solutions. And the reason we're choosing not to do it is psychological. So um, you speak about simplicity and frugality. Is it our, um, our need for en- endless comfort that uh, holds us back well i when i used this um sort of scaled up version of jung's stages of life to explain where i think we are as a as a civilization if not as a species jung really emphasized the the difficulty of the transition at midlife when all the behaviours that have got us so far are suddenly no longer appropriate. They've passed their sell-by date. And so I think the advantage of looking at things in this way is to acknowledge 
the fantastic benefits that, for example, fossil fuels have brought us. We couldn't be talking to each other now halfway across the world from each other without fossil fuels as things stand at the moment. But we have to we have to transform our technology as well as our our attitude. And I identified three basic mechanisms or um, categories, if you like, of why we're failing to do this. I call them inertia, hubris, and denial. Right. And um, inertia is pretty obvious, isn't it? Because there's an awful lot of vested interests where business as usual suits them down to the ground. They don't want things to change. Hubris is this very inflated notion we have of ourselves as as masters of the world and as uh, Lovelock says we've actually got to enter into a much more democratic relationship with with the rest of nature you know which brings us into the ideas of deep ecology speak to us about the the evolution of your own understanding from the time and the writings of Arnie Nietzsche. How you have, uh, how you have taken in that philosophy of deep, deep ecology and how it has transformed you into writing your present book. I think what I do in my, in my book is actually join up a lot of dots. So I just discovered these um, synergies between Jung's model of the psyche and Lovelock's model of Gaia. That was the first thing I discovered. Mm. And I knew a wonderful man who sadly passed away two or three years ago, F. David Pete. I don't know if you ever heard of him, but he was... He was a theoretical physicist, but very Renaissance man who um, was interested in the arts, humanities, and so on. And he put me on to Arnie Ness and deep ecology. And when I started to look at that, and when I started to draw the parallels between the ego and its relationship to the psyche as a whole, as understood by Jungian psychology, and us, homo sapiens, and our relationship to the planet as a whole, understood by ecology and Gaia theory, then it seemed to me that the Jungian process of individuation, where the centre of the personality shifts from the ego to the self, and we could spend the rest of the hour discussing what Jung meant by the self, but I mean the, the greater the greater being, the greater person, if you like. Um, how that so paralleled the shift in deep ecology from the anthropocentric to the biocentric worldview, and it just seemed to be a very close match. All the things, all the things, all the dots joined up, if you like. There is a a legacy of language, as I see it. I mean, to develop a, a new language that is animistic in feeling, it is a big responsibility. I mean, you are one of the people doing this. Do you think it's important to 
create new language that's inclusive. Yes, I th- yes, I think it is. Um, funnily enough, I was listening to your interview with Dougald Hind, and I'm a subscriber to the Dark Mountain project. And I would leave the language side to him, I've, I've, or people with his skill set, if you like. I've tried to come from a more, I suppose, using the resources that I have at my disposal, um, which are essentially science and psychology. Uh, but I totally take the point about needing needing a new language, yeah. So really important to me here, how would you suggest that we go from ego to inclusive self psychologically? How, because uh, perhaps much of dark, what I would call dark ego, uh, has come about through, from trauma. Mm. Well, Jung, Jung said that, that our true religion today is a monotheism of consciousness. And um, I think one of the consequences of that is is that it's a driver of our consumerism and our consumerism is actually at the root of all of all the environmental damage that we're doing and it seems to me that we're just filling this endless void this psychological void we're too only outward looking we're out of balance we need to look inside ourselves more we need to listen to our dreams We need to balance that obsession with what's going on in the outer world with what's happening in the inner world. And this is exactly what happens in the shift of emphasis uh, in the midlife transition. In the the first half, if, if you just imagine, if I talk about an individual but scaling it up, we have to learn to to separate from our parents, to find a a partner, to establish security and a home, to raise a family and so on. But when we've done all that, and I have a lot of people in my practice who are sort of rather cast adrift, not sure what to do next, then we have to start adapting to the inner world because the psyche has its own autonomy. Am I going off the subject of your question rather here? No, I don't think no, no. you're asking any, how to do it. Any wisdom, that's, that's a, yes. That's, uh, that's the very difficult thing, is there isn't a prescriptive method for individuation for becoming a more rounded human being or a more whole human being. I do think it's important to stress wholeness because um, as a culture, I think we're obsessed with, with perfection and uh, this has nothing to do with perfection. It has to do with wholeness and balance. And balance is in itself far more prominent in Eastern worldviews than Western worldviews. We we just want to go further and further to extremes. So, um, you, as you say, your your soulmate is a Japanese. Hmm lady, your wife, your soulmate, yes. how has the Japanese 
a way of life and Shintoism, for instance. How has that transformed you to be the man who wrote this book? <laughs> well, I can say there's never a dull moment. We're, all, we're always um, learning about each other and our, our views of consciousness and so on. But actually, my interest in the East long long predates my getting involved with, with my wife. I began in 1977 practicing Tai Chi Chuan, Sing Yi Chuan, Bagua Zhang, with an old lady from Beijing. And after eight years, she asked me to learn the, she didn't ask me, she told me to learn the Chinese language because I had to learn the Chinese worldview. So I've always been attracted, uh, particularly to Taoist, to Taoist philosophy. And I find the idea, the, the interplay of the opposites is, is really, really important. That comes back to what I was saying a minute ago. And as Dougald Hind referred to last time, the opening of the Tao Te Ching, that um, uh, the Tao that could be named is not the true Tao. I come back to this time and time again in my book. I use Korzybski's famous saying, the map is not the territory, you know. Yes, yes. Or Alan Watts said, the menu is not the meal. Right. Um, that, you know. And that in, its, that in itself is is... I think, a humbling realization. Yeah, I would say uh, thinking is not a sensual ability. Mm. Mm. Um, What I I realize in in Japan and through some encounter with with Shinto, which is um, a very mysterious religion for Westerners, but it is so grounded in nature and awe of nature. Um, Japan, as we've been reminded this week, is is subject to immense natural forces. And uh, yes. And that's that's reflected in, in their, their religion. But yet it does it make people uh, who practice this Religion does it make them less materialistic? Does it open them? Like I, I wrote down here something to ask you. What does your mind look like to you when it extends to include the mountains that you live in? I'm really, I'm really struggling to find the vocabulary to convey that. Yeah. Um, it. The two words that come to my mind embody the '60s. It's a feeling of peace, and it's a feeling of love. Oh, beautiful! Thank you, thank you. So, why wouldn't everybody want that? Is what I, I wonder. Um, they're getting an awful lot of messages not to want that that's true Um, 
I haven't ever seen an advert on television saying stop buying stuff and go hiking. <laughs> go to the mountains. <laughs> yes. Um, um, uh, and uh, not everybody, you know, I'm privileged. I'm privileged to be able to afford to live here. Not everybody, you know, if you if if you're um, poor and live in yeah. in a city, yeah, you know, there are people who've never seen the stars yeah. in their life. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, what about that paradox? What about the paradox that someone who needs to put uh, to heat themselves has to cut down trees? Uh, how about it, Andrew? Well, we cut down trees to heat the house where I live, actually. Um, but um, but they're replanted. I mean that that is that is actually a sustainable form of energy. But I think what you're coming close to yes. is the is the argument the fossil fuel industry uses that uh, we need fossil fuels to lift people out of poverty. Yeah? Yeah, I mean, um, it's, uh, it, it's something I don't understand. So mm-hmm. I thought maybe a, a thinker such as you could enlighten me somewhat on... I don't, I don't know how to join these two things. Yeah, well, <laughs> if I can leave the environment aside for a minute, one good way to lift people out of poverty would um, be to redistribute wealth a little more equitably. It's it's obscene, the... the yes, the, obscenity. The concentration of wealth at the moment in the world. I can't remember the latest statistics. I mean, it's something like eight individuals own 50% of the world's wealth. Yeah, but but there would have to be an enormous psychological change. Mm. Uh, talking about growing up, I mean, some children want to own all the toys. <laughs> yes. Right. Maybe when you're a child, you want all the toys in the room. Um, yes. How um, how do you help people come around to a psychologic, psycho, psychedelic, psychological change that's um, that's more inclusive, that's more generous, that's more compassionate. Yes. Well, if I knew the answer to that question, I'd be doing it. I, 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 I do my little bit by writing this book, of but course. I mean, at the at the end of the day, that's what I'm asking people to do. That there's a lot of examples I give in my book of, for example, diff, different approaches to economics. I mean, I I ended up, I concluded my book with a quote from. Um, Fritz Schumacher, who inspired me, he he really turned things around for me when I read him in, I don't know, the late seventies, early eighties. Small is beautiful. What a a few people need to be reminded of that again. I was wondering, 
Do you know how many species need us in order to survive? <laughs> I could probably count those on the fingers of one elbow. Wow. Well, that's... But I don't know. I don't know. I've, I've never asked myself that question. But I, I certainly am sure that um, bacteria could survive without us an awful lot better than we could uh -huh. survive without bacteria. Yeah. For example, yeah, yeah, I thought that that question came up as I was examining your book. Mm. Um, mm. That uh, the uh, the fact that our presence kills a lot of species, probably a lot more than how many species need us to survive. Yeah. Yeah. Andrew, tell us about um, numinous moments of somatic intensity that you've experienced, perhaps in Cusco or in the mm. avalanche or in the, just in the mountains. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, give, I tried to give some examples in my book, but... Um, Uh, uh, yeah, Where, which which one to begin with? Well, I think I mentioned that um, when I'm hiking in Japan, I can just feel the the spirit of the place, you know, the genius loci. As I'm coming round a bend in a path, a blind bend, and then when I get round the bend. There is a Shinto shrine, perhaps with a tree garlanded with those um, uh, zigzag papers that they have in Japan and a ceremonial rope and so on. And I really think, I ask myself, am I picking up the existence of the Shinto shrine or did the people who put the shrine here tune into the same thing that I am aware of uh, The avalanche, well, I think, I'd, I think I'd rather not talk about that. But I was comparing it with being a victim of, how can I put it, danger, natural danger versus human danger, let's put it like that, um, or natural violence, if you like, versus human violence. Cusco and Peru... Well, I went there. <clears throat> I travel quite a lot around the world in Africa and Asia and Europe and so on. It's my one and only trip to South America, and I was just astounded at how how different the feel of the place was, in as much as one can generalize about continents, how different the, the um, feel of Peru and Machu Picchu and Cusco was uh, in enormously enormously impressive i was very drawn to the pre-hispanic culture there the quechua and aymara culture in fact i almost i'd already put in an application to train as a Jungian analyst and i almost quit to study anthropology and um the culture of the high andes i was very moved by the by the notion of pachamama in particular yes the, the, you know the mother earth deity Um, which is so widespread, of course, as I now realize, having studied comparative religion in my 
Jungian training. If you wanted me to say something about psychedelics, which I haven't used for many, many years, when I used when I used to live in London, I missed nature so much. And so at weekends, I used to go out in the countryside and just take a modest dose of mushrooms. And it just intensified, it dissolved the boundaries, it intensified the contact with nature. I think psychedelics are important. And I was sort of pondering on this, knowing your history and the nature, you know, of of your website yes. and thinking, well, I don't think psychedelics can tell us what to do, but I think they can tell us what to see and how to see. And part of that process is dissolving the boundaries between us and the natural world. And so that's why um, when I lived in London, very cut off from nature in an exclusively urban environment, at weekends I would go into the countryside, take, I can't remember how many mushrooms, but I mean enough, enough to loosen up my perception or maybe sharpen up my perception to dissolve the boundaries and to enter into some kind of communitas with other than human beings. And the universal experience of everybody I knew who did this was this profound affinity for trees and this realisation that trees are sentient beings and they are sentient on such a different time scale from us that normally that is just below our threshold of awareness. But it was... It was a numinous experience, um, repeated several times. Yeah, very important thing to have done. Yeah, yeah. Is it possible that trees might be the uh, perhaps the strongest communicators between uh, nature and us? Because a lot of us seem to report that... Uh, amongst our first connection, was this, uh, this communion with trees. Mm. Mm. I wonder. I don't know, but yeah. trees are yeah. absolutely vital and there's an awful lot of them and uh, <laughs> we, we really need to have a more respectful <laughs> relationship to them, that's for sure. Yeah. yeah, maybe they're just crying out to us. I think I think the whole of Gaia could be doing that, yeah. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, from, um, from your words to, uh, to us humans, yeah, you must, you must have a great, great love for the, what I would call the outside of us, to live in the mountains in Switzerland like that. Uh, why don't you talk to us about that, uh, that passion of yours? Yeah. I think it began when I was a small child. I grew up in London, and I don't know, 
I must have been five or six years old, and we went on a family holiday to the Isle of Mull in Scotland. And I remember for the first time in my life seeing bedrock. You know what bedrock is? Not stones or boulders, but actually the the rock of the world poking through the earth. And I was mesmerised. I was absolutely mesmerised by that. And I've been fascinated and drawn to that my whole life. So when I got to the stage of choosing where to do my Jungian training, it was a choice between London again or Switzerland, and that was a, a no contest. So I have, I have to be close to nature. I have to be. Perhaps I'm growing misanthropic in my old age. I, I, I like large crowds of people less and less. I find cities rather stressful places. I mean, <laughs> the countryside can be tough as well. Let's not romanticise it. You yes. know, we have um, some tough winters here. And as I say, I've been avalanched. I think, I, as I say in my book, I think to put nature on a pedestal is as dangerous as to put the unconscious on a pedestal. Don't underestimate it. You know, it's uh, there's a dark side to nature as well. Yes. Um, but not not in the sense of evil. I think evil is a uniquely human attribute somehow. Nature can be inhospitable, dangerous and so on, but but I don't feel with with the intent. It just is. Nature is what it is. Mm. You know, this is the animals are what they are. Well, that's very, very interesting. You know, von, Marie-Louise von Franz, um, uh, writing about um, interpretation of fairy tales, and as you know, fairy tales are the sort of bare bones of the psyche. Mm-hmm. And she said there's only one rule in fairy tale interpretation. If an animal appears, trust it. It's a helper. You know? So uh, Beautiful. There's authenticity there integrity Andrew what about um, evil in humans what have you found out about that impulse I don't That's a huge question. Let's put it like this. Jung uh, corresponded for a long time with a uh, Catholic priest, Father Victor White, and they had a final falling out over the Catholic doctrine of privatio boni, which is that evil is simply the absence of good. And I don't don't go along with that. I I think evil is an active principle, and I, I have seen it. I think you know when you're dealing with it. I find myself thinking of Yeats's poem, The Second Coming, which, interestingly, has been picked up by quite a lot of people. I think there's true evil afoot in the world at the moment, and I think we're in very, very serious, serious trouble. We're in circumstances where we have, this may not be good or evil, but um, politics and society, we have to... 
Just like I said at the beginning of my book, I'm trying to build bridges rather than put up walls. And that's what yes. we as nations, as races, as societies, as cultures have to do. We have to build bridges and face the environmental crisis together because it doesn't respect or know any human boundaries whatsoever. And we're moving in exactly the opposite direction. We have a succession of probably the leaders of the most influential countries in the world right now are absolutely catastrophic in their attitude. You know, Jung said, where the will to power exists, there is no love mm. and vice versa. Mm -hmm. And right now, the world is dominated by individuals for whom the will to power overruns everything else. And I think we're in real, real trouble because of that. Well, I think you say it when you say we are in a thirst for meaning while drowning in information. I think yeah. that would be a good example of evil. Uh, yes. It's, it's very well in my... in. I mean, when I say something is very well said, it's because I understand it in a flash. And there's such a poverty of, of meaning within all this information. Yes, yes. And, of course, social media is the perfect means for spreading information and disinformation. And meanwhile... And it's a very destabilizing phenomenon, I think. But it isn't bringing meaning. Well, it goes back to frugality and simplicity. Yes. To your, those words that you bring in, the, the word frugality, which yeah. Yeah. I'd really like you to explain what you mean by that. Yeah. Well, I took the I took the definition of frugality that uh, a wonderful writer William Offels used. I'm just trying to see if I can if I can quote it. Bear with me. Yeah, William Offels said frugality is not the same as stinginess or asceticism mm -hmm. to be frugal means to be sparing in the use of resources that is thrifty without being pinch penny frugality is the art of making as little as possible go as far as possible mm -hmm. and interestingly enough I'm, I'm a mountaineer um, as was Arnie Ness and in a way, that's the essence of mountaineering. You want to carry as little stuff with you as you possibly can. Keep your pack as light as possible, but have the essentials that you need to keep yourself safe. You know, Jung, Jung lived in a, built his tower at Bollingen without electricity or running water. And uh, again, lived a very, very frugal lifestyle. He stayed on the he sailed on Lake Zurich. Again, you carry as little as possible with you when you do that. So it's it's the opposite of, of greed, if you like. Endless, endless, insatiable consumption. Well, that's a good, uh, a good example of uh, 
what's happening between us and uh, and our home when i when i was sailing you, i wanted to, everything to be in its right place and nothing that i couldn't use because otherwise it would hit me in the head <laughs> i mean yeah you'd have things flying out hitting you in the head and <laughs> so Perhaps that's happening. Um, Jose's pointing to the word Africa. Uh, you were in Kenya. How how was your experience in Africa? Well, I've been I've been to different parts of Africa for different reasons. But um, well, actually, <clears throat> I went to Kenya en route to Uganda. And I went climbing in the Ruanzori Mountains, the so-called Mountains of the Moon, right. which are notorious for bad weather. And we had perfect weather, and I managed to climb all three <clears throat> of the massifs in the Ruanzoris. But my experiences of Africa, well, in a way, they could be summed up by buying a buying a bus ticket in Nairobi, for example, because the last. The last thing you do when you want a bus ticket is march into the office and go, I want a bus ticket. Mm. You you start off by saying, hello, how are you? H how is your family? Uh, it's very nice weather today and so on. And you establish a relationship yeah. with the other person. It's 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 very, very related. Um, and then, oh, by the, by the way, if if you have a spare minute, I'd like a bus ticket. <laughs> and then you'll get it, you know. Um, yeah, it made me. I I worked in I worked in South Africa on um, on rural electrification using renewable energy, and I had people there coming up to me, jumping up and down with excitement, saying, "We're voting." We can vote, you know. Yeah. This was in the Transkei, which used to be euphemistically called a homeland. It's basically a sort of outdoor concentration camp as part of the apartheid era. And it just made me realise how much I take for granted living in a liberal Western democracy, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. 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 I, had, I had tremendous experiences in Africa, yeah. Especially living in Switzerland, where Brexit is not going on. Right. Right. Yes. I don't, <laughs> Brexit is part, but see, Brexit is part of the fragmentation process that's taking place when we really need to be pulling together. That's right. Politics mm -hmm. of separation. Yes. Yes. Of of nationalism. I mean, Brexit. I well. I made a mistake earlier on when I talked about um, the, the three three classes of reasons why I'm not doing anything. I, I said inertia, hubris, and denial. No, I meant but, actually the three modes of denial right. are hubris, inertia, and nostalgia. Nostalgia. And nostalgia. Brexit is an absolutely classic symptom of nostalgia. It, Britain. Some Britons haven't quite realised that the empire on which the sun never sets has actually ended. Right, right. So, 
So when the when the Leave campaign used the slogan "Take Back Control," which which is absolutely meaningless and is certainly not what we're going to do, yeah. they were appealing absolutely directly to people's nostalgia, just as Trump did with "Make America Great Again." Exactly. It's, America's in decline relative to China. Wake up, you right. know, and oh. deal with it like like grown ups. But those are brilliant slogans because they they speak directly to people who will not understand climate change. Absolutely, yes, and and there's a lot of I think there's a lot of nostalgia for the kind of carefree days of the the fifties and and yeah the sixties as well when climate change was unheard of. What carefree! I remember my mother going to visit my sister and me going to visit my sister in finishing school in England and hiding stakes at the bottom of a of a golf bag, hiding <laughs> because they were rationed, right? Okay. Yeah. Okay, but I'm I'm talking about the um, I'm talking about before Rachel Carson published Silent Spring, which really which right. really woke right. people up. But exactly. um, I mean, I, I think I think also there's a big difference between um, America and Europe here, and it's it's to do with the fact that Europe is is small and crowded. You know, we have ten times the population density of the United States, and so it's quite hard, I think, for for Americans to adjust to the notion of finite resources uh -huh. when you have such vast, wide open areas. See, that makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. You know, um, what I would love is in closing. Would you tell us the story of the bird in the sky? Hmm. The one, the one my uh, dear old Chinese teacher yeah. taught me. Yeah. Yes, yes, because I, I, I think it's important. I believe, I believe it's a, an idiosyncratic interpretation of um, part of Chuang Tzu's writing about the great pun, but I. I checked with some Chinese scholars and never really got to the bottom of it. But she, in my Chinese language lessons, told me this story of a bird that grew bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until it disappeared. And the reason it disappeared was it filled the sky from horizon to horizon. And so... <clears throat> That meant there was no edge or outline of the bird visible, so there was no non-bird visible, and because of that, the bird disappeared. I think it's um, I mean, it relates to the you know the rhetorical question: How does the fish know what water is? But ah. but it is it is a process, not a state, and of course it is the. It is the aim of every totalitarian-minded person to achieve that state, you know. But um, I think there are there are some some big birds that condition our worldview. For example, Cartesian dualism. You know, the yeah. 
uh, res cogitans, res extensa, you know, and I very early in my book in, invoke Spinoza as an alternative to that, and that leaves things wide open for, you know, the concept of an underlying commonality to mind and matter, the, the unus mundus, uh, as the alchemists and subsequently Jung called it, the, and the uh, psychophysically neutral domain. And once you, once you can look at something like that, then, then your worldview automatically becomes more holistic. It's again part of the building bridges, not putting up walls. There's one important thing that I didn't mention so far, and that is patriarchy and the role of patriarchy in keeping things as they are. And I think we're really seeing a turning point at the moment. Um, William Golding's idea to name Lovelock's theory Gaia, a female, the anima mundi, Mother Earth, I think, was a huge step in that direction. And right now, when we look at what's happening in the world, for me at least, the most inspiring figures on the global scene are women. Greta Thunberg. Greta Thunberg is so interesting because one of the implications of nonlinear dynamics or systems theory, if you like, is that if you intervene in a massive system with a small perturbation at the right point, the effect can be massive, absolutely massive. And then, I don't know, the list goes on. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Jacinta Ardern in New Zealand, um, the hero, or should I say heroine, in the Brexit struggle in the UK is a, is a woman called Gina Miller, who's a, a very smart lawyer. So I think we're really seeing, at the very least, a rebalancing um, on that front beginning to emerge. I wanted to throw in probably the most relevant quote, and it's a very short one, from Jung, in the context of the whole book. And that was something he said in 1957. And it's very simply, the world today hangs by a thin thread. And that thread is the psyche of man. To which I should, of course, add woman. He was concerned about the Cold War, the threat of nuclear annihilation, which, let's face it, hasn't gone away. Uh, we have environmental problems on top of that. But compare and contrast that with what Rex Tillerson said when he was CEO of ExxonMobil in 2012. And he said, we spent our entire existence adapting to climate change, he means. Changes to weather patterns that move crop production areas around, we'll adapt to that. And this is the killer line. It's an engineering problem and it has an engineering solution. What he overlooks, of course, is that it's the psyche that wields the tool that decides the course of engineering. So I think we've really got to take an inner, inner spiritual approach to this. And that brings me to 
the reason for writing my book that I think I only fully realised some months after it had been published. And that is that we're going to have a very tough time ahead of us. We've talked quite a bit about frugality, the simple life, and so on. But it's going to mean giving up comforts, the opportunities that we've become so accustomed to, and that's not going to be easy. I've taken a pledge not to fly anymore. In Europe, for example, I'm going to travel by train. Um, so, you know, Greater Thunberg won't fly at all. When I have parents-in-law living in Japan, that's not so easy. But we really are going to have to make a lot of sacrifices. And I know from my work as an analyst that some suffering is absolutely unavoidable. We can't prevent suffering. But what we can do, I think, is give it meaning. And there's a world of difference between the experience of meaningless and meaningful suffering. You could think of it very simply, for example, in almost every religious tradition, there's, um, there are periods of fasting. Well, there's a massive difference between fasting for a spiritual reason and simply going hungry. So I think that if we can provide a framework of meaning through which we can adapt to the very difficult future ahead of us, I think that's something that we should all try to do. Well, let me ask you this question. Have, sure. have you brought meaning into your life regarding these changes? And what would you like to describe that? I have, I would say. Um, <laughs> I would point out that if you come to Switzerland to do a Jungian training and live without income for a few years, your bank balance just dwindles to nothing. And I really did feel that my outer riches were being compensated by my inner riches. But it's very hard to describe. I was once asked in an exam, what is the meaning of meaning? And I retorted, I didn't realize this was a philosophy exam, which got me off the hook. Mm -hmm. I think meaning is extremely hard to define, and yet we all know what it is. Mm -hmm. Okay. I think meaning engages the soul. And information engages the intellect. Meaning engages something far beyond the ego. Right. You know, I realized that one of, the, one, of the, one of the limitations of science is that it, at least in the Western tradition, is value-free. So when Western science describes the consequences of climate change, that... X degrees of temperature rise will cause Y feet of sea level rise will cause Z million people to be displaced from their homes. Mm -hmm. It's the soul that responds to that as a catastrophe because what the science is doing is simply mapping one description or set of values or statistics onto another, onto another. It's not saying why it matters. 
Do you see what I'm saying? Yes, and it's, I do. It's the, it's the soul that engages with it on that level. Perhaps that would return to what you were saying about love and peace earlier yeah. in the interview. Yes. The feeling you to, have when you're in nature. To which, with hindsight, I would add here and now. All right. Excellent. You're absolutely in the here and now in nature. Yes. yes. You're not walking around hunched over your cell phone. Andrew, um, please take your time and tell us what you would like to say in closing to this conversation. I would like to say that what I've tried to do in my book is... As I said, join up the dots, show some synergies um, between apparently completely disconnected disciplines and see that something new can emerge from that. An alternative worldview that individually is uh, described by Jung in great detail as the process of individuation, giving emphasis to the whole of the psyche, not just the ego, and parallel to that in our relationship with the outer world um, by the principles of deep ecology, by becoming a good deal more humble than we have been to date and reconciling ourselves with nature rather than continuing to try to dominate nature. I've given some examples of learning from nature rather than learning about nature. Mm. And I think it's very important that we start to, to make that shift. I spend a lot of time in the beginning of my book criticizing either or thinking when both and thinking is actually more appropriate. And I think that's very important here too. So we are now facing such an urgent environmental crisis with so many few, so few years left in which to act that I think we have to act on every level in parallel to the best of our abilities, which means through science, technology, institutional reform, social reform, and psychological transformation. That's a non-exhaustive list, but really really go for it to the best of our individual abilities. Thank you so much, Andrew Fellows. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you.